following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. You might have also noticed coming in this morning, we had a little, our Calvary Review, we're doing this for a few months, and uh, if you might have noticed several mug shots here on the front cover. Um, actually, we did have to find their mug shots to get a picture of them, but uh, actually it's just a commemoration. This morning's a very uh, special morning. It's one I've been looking over, forward to for many years now. Uh, for today, we're going to be inaugurating our newly appointed deacon team here at Calvary Bible Church. And so to recognize this special occasion, I, I thought it'd be appropriate for us to go to a book of, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6. So please turn there with me, Acts chapter 6. We're going to be there this morning. This coming July will mark the 45th anniversary of Apollo 11's historic moon landing. Just four months after that, in fact, Apollo 12 also made it to the moon and back. But the great string of successes in the Apollo program was threatened the very next year when just 56 hours into the mission after the launch of Apollo 13, an oxygen tank exploded. It was then when mission commander Jim Lovell radioed back saying, Houston, we had a problem. Well, many of you are familiar with that story. Four days later, the crew did make it back safely. It was an amazing account of ingenuity and perseverance and boldness and courage. It's a great story, but it was one that almost ended in disaster. And in a similar way, we see in Acts how the early church had experienced success after success. It was growing and thriving and flourishing. Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter 2 resulted in 3,000 people coming to Christ that day. In Acts 4, as the preaching of the gospel continued in Jerusalem, it says that 5,000 men had become believers, which means perhaps fifteen to 20,000 believers in the church, if we include women and children. Acts chapter 5, the author Luke notes as well that multitudes of men and women, he says, are constantly being added to the number of believers in the church in Jerusalem. It was really a gospel explosion. And as, as you read and begin in, in the beginning of Acts and read through, it's like you're holding on to your seat. I mean, there's, there's just an amazing revival happening within the city after the Lord Jesus had ascended to heaven. But then we get to chapter 6. In chapter 6, we find out there's a problem. A problem so serious it threatened to sabotage the many successes in the newly born church. And it was an issue that resulted in the apostles declaring, Jerusalem, we have a problem. The apostles were able to solve this problem through the wisdom and guidance of the Holy Spirit. And in their solution to this problem that took place, birthed a key office in the church, the office of deacon. So please stand with me one more time as I read about it from Acts chapter 6. We'll be reading the first seven verses of Acts 6. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip. Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles. And after praying, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Let's ask God to bless his word. Father, we do desire to know your truth. We desire to exalt Christ by understanding your word and would ask that your spirit would give us that understanding and that he would move in us 
Lord, to apply what we learn from your truth. Thank you, Lord, for this passage you've given us. And thank you for deacons, Father. I pray today you would give us all a better understanding of what their role is and who they are and, and why you have designed this office in the church so that, God, we may honor you through your church so that Jesus would be lifted up. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Okay, so before digging into this text in Acts 6, let me offer a disclaimer. You may have noticed as we're going through the passage that the word deacon did not show up anywhere. So, hey, wait a minute, Tim, you're going to talk about deacons. I don't even see it in the passage. Well, we have to remember one thing. Deacon is really a word that's been transliterated from Greek, the word diakonos, simply where we've taken the Greek and and, uh, in this word, and just simply uh, pronounce it using the English letters. It's a transliteration. But the word deacon or diakonos simply means servant. Uh, specifically and primarily, primarily and initially, uh, servants serving tables. But it came to me in a broader term of service in general. To serve and care for the needs of one another. Now here in Acts 6, we do see the word diakonia or service in verses 1 and 4. And in verse 2, the word diakoneo, which has this, it's the verb, to serve. But these do not speak specifically of the office of deacon, but they talk about this idea of serving. And though the seven men appointed here may not have held the office of deacon per se, it is clear from this passage that the seed of that office was planted in the soil of Acts chapter 6. Paul later listed the requirements for the office of deacon in 1 Timothy 3. But Acts 6 is the beginning. It's the foundation. It is the blueprint for the office. And today we're going to see from these verses both the need for deacons and the requirements for deacons. And hopefully from our discussion this morning, we'll also gain a greater appreciation and a greater understanding for this important role in the church. Right? I love what Paul said after he laid out the characteristics of qualifications of deacon in 1 Timothy 3. He says in verse 13 this, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now I've specifically called a deacon in office this morning because it is just that. It is an official, recognized, endorsed, sanctioned role within the body of Christ. Paul clearly identifies it as such in 1 Timothy 3. And we're going to get to that passage a little bit later. But I want to be transparent here this morning. I'm going to do this a few times this morning because I believe here at Calvary we have not done such a good job of recognizing or utilizing this important office in the church. We, we do have elders, but not deacons, really, at least not in the manner in which we see in the New Testament. But saints, today, that is changing. Amen. Now, while we here at Calvary may have wrongly lowered the importance of deacons, others have wrongly elevated or misunderstood the role and responsibility of deacons. In many churches, deacons have become like a second governing body. They're kind of like the House of Representatives while the elders are the Senate or the House of Commons and the House of Lords. But that's not the idea here. That's an unbiblical view. It's a view that has led to a host of problems within the church. In fact, I was in one church in particular where uh, there were some concerns brought to one of the pastors by the elders. And that pastor went to the deacon meeting one night and went and told them that the elders were after him. And so it ended up splitting the church. In Acts 6, we're given in this narrative specifics that would teach us, teach us why we have deacons, what their need is for, and what's required of them. And I know, okay, the book of Acts is a narrative, all right? It is, it is descriptive, not prescriptive. That is, it is describing events that took place, not necessarily prescribing what we have to do. So we have to be careful not to make these verses all a mandate for us, if the text doesn't explicitly tell us to do that. But Acts 6 does show us this. It shows us how the office of deacon unfolded and why it was needed, what it does, and what distinguishes it from the office of elder and the role of elders. So we can really glean a lot of insight here from Acts 6 into the purpose and function of deacons. 
the prescriptive part, those prescriptive aspects, Paul lays out clearly in 1 Timothy 3 as he lists the qualifications for deacon. And those only really enhance and are built upon the foundation of what we see here in Acts chapter 6. And so with those disclaimers noted, let's first consider the need for deacon as seen in Acts 6. Look with me again at verse 1. Very interesting what Luke does here. He begins... By saying, again, noting that the number of disciples, the number of believers were continuing to increase in Jerusalem. That's something he's repeated several times before or this idea. And so in the midst of, again, stating, okay, the church is continuing to grow. People are coming to Christ in droves. And then he says, but. But in the midst of this, a complaint arose. That word complaint is is a murmuring, a grumbling. It arose among the saints. And the source of that grumbling, Luke says, came from a group called the Hellenists. Now, Hellenists comes from a Greek word that simply means Greek-speaking. Luke's referring to a group of Jews here who were raised outside of Jerusalem and who spoke Greek rather than Aramaic. And we learn back in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, that, that a number of Jews who were from outside of Israel, perhaps born and raised outside, had come back to Jerusalem to live. Remember, that was when people were speaking in other tongues and they were understanding them because there were many who were from outside of Jerusalem who did not speak Aramaic, spoke other languages, and they were coming home. But they were not necessarily viewed as fully Jewish. In fact, notice here in verse 1, they're contrasted to the native Jew who was born and raised in Israel. In fact, Luke refers to them in verse 1 as Hebrews. And we see here within the church a distinction had taken place in the care for widows, widows who were native to Israel and those who were outside of Israel, those who were Hellenists. And so the Hellenists who were in the church, the body at that time, they had a complaint against. Notice that word against. They had a complaint towards or against the Hebrews because the Hellenist widows were being overlooked. They were being neglected. They weren't being adequately cared for. And this was no small issue. In fact, notice in verse 1, right after Luke says the number of believers were continuing to increase and to grow, that's when he immediately says a complaint arose. By doing this, I, I think he's indicating that there's a problem here. If this doesn't get resolved, it could be a significant hindrance and have a significant negative effect on the advancement of the gospel. For just like if Apollo 13 had ended in disaster, it it could have derailed or significantly hindered the future of NASA. But similarly, and yet more significantly, if this early church dispute wasn't handled rightly, it could have splintered the church, could have created a great divide. And what would a church split have looked like to the watching eyes of Jerusalem? Beloved, I... I want you to remember something here as we look at this. Notice Satan is continuing at work and attacking the church. He tried and has continued to try, but we see earlier in Acts where he introduced persecution in attacking the church. In Acts chapter 5, we see him seek to undermine the body by introducing temptation to sin. You remember Ananias and Sapphira, right? And there Peter had said to them directly, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Peter recognized there was an enemy behind the scenes. Later on in Acts, we're going to see how Satan also used and continues to use false teaching to attack the church. He says there in Acts 20 that false teachers will rise up within the church to draw away believers. It's a real threat. In fact, the elders... Here at Calvary have removed, dismissed many people over the years here who have come in and attacked the gospel, who have sought to propagate heresy regarding Jesus or his word or his gospel. In fact, just recently it happened once again. Somebody here trying to do that. Satan is at work. And here in Acts 6, we see him utilize or pursue or implement another tactic to destroy the church, and that is Disunity. Disunity. Satan will do all he can to create conflict, to stir up strife, to to cause dissension, to drum up dissension. And though up to this point, his other methods of persecution and 
trying to tempt others to sin within the body. Those didn't seem to be working so well. But Satan didn't throw in the towel. He didn't say, you know what? I just can't stop this church thing from growing. I'm just giving up. I'm going to go home. Wherever that is. We know where it will be. You know, this crafty enemy, he will do all he can to seep through the doors of the church. To destroy it from within. You know, he would have loved to see in that early church in Jerusalem. He would have loved to see this issue between the Hellenists and the Hebrews split the church. And so you'd have the first church of Jerusalem on one side of the street battling the second church of Jerusalem on the other. He would have loved that. Beloved, never let us forget the fact that we have an evil enemy working to destroy the church, working to destroy this church. That's why we have to be so vigilant to preserve our unity. For brothers and sisters, Satan's tactics haven't changed. We are still in a war. And Satan knows it is the church that will advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is through the church that God works to move forward his kingdom. And so Satan knows that's what I have to attack. I have to take out Calvary Bible Church. I have to take out all of these other churches that are preaching the true gospel. And dependent on God's word. Satan will do all he can to malign and discredit and harm the bride of Christ. He went after the husband and failed. Now he's going after his bride. So let us stand against him in the power of the spirit. Let us care for and support the persecuted. Let us root out and remove any false teaching. Let us admonish and help any who are caught in sin. And let us be vigilant not to let the unity in this body erode. Don't let the enemy gain a foothold here. Amen? And the apostles, they too, they realized the seriousness of the situation that confronted them. And that's why they gathered the body together. And they said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. And by saying that, they weren't saying, you know what, we need to be studying our Bible. So, so, you know, we don't have time for these petty, insignificant issues. Who cares about these old women and their hunger? That wasn't the tone at all here from these apostles. Actually, it couldn't be further from the truth. We learn in Acts 4 that it was the apostles to whom the people, as they would sell their goods in order to care for needs in the body, they would bring those proceeds and lay them at the feet of the apostles to make sure that the needs in the body were being taken care of. And I'm sure after watching Jesus and his compassion and care for needs after three years, that these men too understood and had a heart and desire to care for people in need. The apostles wanted to do that. But now the church has grown. It was 15, 20,000 people, something like that. How many needs do you think there were? Just a couple probably, huh? How busy do you think these guys were getting? I mean, think about it. They're receiving the goods and the money. They've got to make sure that gets protected and taken care of. And, and they have to identify legitimate needs that exist within the body and then buying what is needed in order to, to care for those needs and then ensuring that those who had the needs did receive the help. I'm getting exhausted just thinking about it. And as a result, that the more that the apostles were involved in taking care of these physical needs, the less they were able to care for the spiritual needs, right? That stands to reason. And so they said, you know what? Enough, enough. It is not desirable. It's not a good thing we're doing here in waiting tables and serving in this manner. For the sake of the flock, we have to stay focused on feeding the flock. Not physical food, but spiritual And so they said, we must make it our priority to devote ourselves to to prayer, to prayer for you and to the ministry of the word. It's interesting here in verse four, that word ministry is the word diakonia, service. They recognize we serve the body, too. And the way in which God has called us to serve is through his word. But the apostles didn't leave it at that. You know, they didn't just say, look, we got a problem here. We don't have time to deal with it. You're just going to have to figure it out. All right. Instead, these men showed wisdom. They showed leadership. They they gathered the church together and they had a plan. 
Find seven godly, spirit-filled men who, who can take care of these needs and make sure that all the widows are being cared for as God desires. And I have to tell you, that is sheer genius on the part of these apostles. You know what? They recognize something. They say, hey, you know what? There's others here that can care for these needs. We don't have to do everything. There's those who are, are skilled and capable and able to do that so that we can do what we've been called to do. And here we see something very important. As this church is growing and maturing, it's becoming organized. I was talking to Brad Kelly about this this morning. He loves this. Organization in the church. I mean, structure was being put in place. Structure isn't a bad thing. The apostles recognized here we need some of that. Or else things are getting out of control here. and We're going to be distracted from what God has called us to do. And so in the apostles' response we see two important purposes for deacons. The first and most obvious one is to care for needs in the body. In fact, that's the primary role of deacon. That's the word means, servant. But more than a servant, a deacon is one who organizes and facilitates others to serve. Because again, think about it. Seven guys in a church that large, they were going to end up in the same boat as the apostles if they tried to do it all themselves, right? Right? They had to enlist others and and organize and administrate and facilitate to make sure the needs were being taken care of. Notice in verse 1, it also says it was a daily exercise. There was a lot for them to do. This was a daily activity to collect the funds, identify the needs, buy the supplies, make sure that those who had needs were being taken care of. These guys would definitely need to do lots of delegating and organizing. And in fact, in 1 Timothy 3, we see one of the qualifications for a deacon is that he leads, that he manages his home well. Now, this doesn't mean that deacons cannot serve themselves. But their primary goal is to make sure the work is getting done. It is to enlist and direct and help others in the body to care for needs. Deacons are those who facilitate the serving, who are those who make sure that the needs in the body are being met. Alexander Strzok wrote an excellent book, an excellent book on deacons. It's called Minister of Mercy. And I like how he summarizes toward the end of the book the role of deacons. Listen to what he says. Through the deacons, the local church's charitable activities are effectively organized and centralized. The deacons are collectors of funds, distributors of relief, and agents of mercy. They help the poor. The jobless, the sick, the widowed, the elderly, the homeless, the shut-in, the refugees, and the disabled. They relieve suffering. They comfort, protect, and encourage people and help to meet their needs. Here, Alexander identifies and focuses on the importance of meeting individual needs within the body. And we also must recognize, too, it is not just individual needs that need to be cared for, but there are needs for the body as a whole. We have uh, structures around us that need to be cared for. We have a food ministry, amen? A food ministry, and that requires oversight and administration in order to facilitate that ministry. We have computers that need to be functioning, phones and lights. We have a a website, a sound um, ministry, a printing, all kinds of things. And these two are important as well because they contribute to the overall functioning of the church. And so we need deacons, those who will be able to care for these uh, practical needs within individuals and also for the church as a whole. In addition to meeting needs, we also see here in Acts 6... Another, a second purpose for deacons. Or think about this a minute. If there are no deacons, who would take care of the responsibilities for all these things? At whose feet would they fall? Those who are leading, right? The elders in this case. That's exactly what happened in Jerusalem. It fell to the apostles. They were the ones leading in the church, so they were needing to take care of these needs. And I'm going to be transparent again here. I think that's exactly what's happened here at Calvary exactly what happened has happened the elders become involved in overseeing many of the ministries here and i believe that's one of the reasons we're all so busy and in some cases disconnected from you we aren't focused on what we need to be focused on and that is shepherding 
the body of Christ through word, the word and prayer. Titus 1.9 says that elders are to feed and protect the flock. 1 Peter 5.1 says that elders are to shepherd the flock, exercising oversight. Acts 20.28 20, says elders are to guard the flock from wolves. But if we're busy making sure this ministry or that ministry is running okay, it's going to take away from our focus. And what do you think is going to happen? You know, one example, those who've come into the church and sought to, to spread heresy, those guys would go unnoticed. They could run amok. And there are many other things, many other negative aspects. And it isn't that the ministries here aren't important. I think that's often the struggle for the elders. It, it is for me. I, I see a need, and I want to make sure it's taken care of. Because I care. Because we care. The elders care. When we see needs, we want to make sure those are are provided for. We don't want to see suffering among you. And I'm sure the apostles were in that same quandary as they're thinking about these poor widows who aren't being cared for and remembering what we learn later from James 1. What is pure and undefiled religion, beloved? To care for orphans and widows in their distress. The apostles knew how important this ministry was. I'm sure they were very concerned about it, and they could have done what would seem to have been prudent at the time. You know what? We'll take care of it. This is important. We recognize these these wonderful ladies matter to God's heart. We're just going to make sure it happens. And you know, that may have solved the problem in the short term, but at what cost? At what cost in the long term? And so the apostles said, you know what? There are others skilled and gifted, probably more qualified than we are to make sure that this is done. So church, you go find those guys and you bring them back. We will examine them and commission them. And you know, as I was looking at the passage this week, the the apostles' response in verse 2 really hit me. And it hit me as an example of the apostles to us who are elders here at Calvary. Guys, I'm going to speak to you directly for a second here. Because notice the apostles here. Notice the the apostles who, when they had a problem that presented itself within the body, what did they do? What did they do? They gathered the body together, right? Say, hey, we've got this problem before us. And they had come up with a plan and they enlisted the body to carry out that plan. Brothers, we have to get better at this. We have to do better at letting the body know of the needs and issues that face the church and then involving the body in the solution because this isn't our church. This is Jesus' church. And we are all part of Calvary Bible Church. And if we don't do that, we create distance and we aren't taking advantage of the many gifts and skills and abilities that God has provided here. So guys, this is just something for us to work on and think about. And I would ask body at large, please pray for the elders and be patient. Again, we're all men who care for you. and We want to do the right thing. I think, Jim, you say this sometimes. We want to do the right thing in the worst way, and sometimes we do. (laughs) Commissioning the deacon team this morning is one step in this direction, in the right direction. Having a service that is focused and dedicated on the role of deacons and explaining what their purpose and function in is why, and why we need them and who they are. That's another step that we're taking in the right direction. And commissioning this team isn't so that our lives get less busy as elders. It is really so that we're busy about the right things. So really a key purpose for the deacons, and it's amazing how it's, it's wrapped up in a key purpose for the elders. They're, they're intertwined. If the deacons are doing their job well, it allows the elders to do their job well. And that's what is identified here in Acts 6. There's a third purpose that I see here in Acts 6 for deacons. It's really the initiating purpose for why they were, uh, why these men were identified or needed. For not only are deacons necessary to care for needs within the body, not only are they important in regards to freeing up the elders to shepherd the flock, but deacons are also a unifying function in the church. That was the issue. 
there was a potential massive disunity, a fracture that was forming in the church. And so these deacon, these deacon prototypes, I'll call them, were identified in order to make sure unity in the body was preserved. So important. Jamie Dunlop from Nine Marks Ministries uh, uh, called the deacons shock absorbers. And how they were chosen to preserve union. But I like that. You know, shock absorber, right? It, it, to protect your alignment, your wheels, and, you know, all the potholes and all the everything that you may hit on the road. Deacons are, in a lot of ways, like that in the church. You know, I was thinking maybe we could get some shirts like it has a shock absorber on the front, you know. No badges or nothing. Just wear a shirt with a shock absorber. In fact, let's call them that. Calvary shock absorbers. I love that, man. That's a great picture. Michelin man. No, we got the shock absorbers here, buddy. You know, and I love in verse 5 how the body responded to the apostles' plan. Notice it says, The statement found approval within the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, Philip, and five other guys. Notice these seven names here are Greek names. And I find that very interesting. You see, rather than the the congregation there identifying this uh, committee with representing various interests, they said, you know what? Who can better take care of the needs of these widows, these Hellenist widows, than those who have the same background? Let's identify seven men who will be able to come alongside them and help them and who understand them. And so that's what they did. And in all of this, we see a key role here for the deacons. Not only are they meeting the needs, but in so doing, they're contributing to the functioning of the body. Because again, they would have needed to enlist others to help in this important uh, ministry that was required. And so a serving body is a unified body, right? You see how the deacons then are important to the unity? As they enlist and facilitate our service with one another and for one another. They serve as that shock absorber, that unifying function to make sure the church doesn't break in terms of disunity. Ultimately, the purpose of deacons in caring for the needs and freeing up the elders to shepherd and adding organization to the church and becoming a unifying force, you see, ultimately, they are allowing the church to fulfill its purpose. And what is our purpose, brothers and sisters, as a church? What is it? Why are we here? To glorify God by making disciples. Right? Isn't that what Jesus said when he left? All right. Here's what I want you to do. Make more of me. Make followers of me who love me, who serve me, who come to me in repentance and faith. And train them to do the same for others. So that God will be glorified as everyone reflects the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, deacons are vital to the purpose of the church. For without them, unity is at risk. Needs go unmet. The church's witness is undermined as it's not caring for others as it should. The elders are distracted from their responsibilities. And all of that impedes our mission to make disciples. We see this in verse 7. Notice there. Luke says, after he opens in verse 1 with the the number of believers that could continue to increase, and he introduces this problem, and then he says in verse 7, and the word of God kept spreading, and the disciples continued, continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And then he says, even the priests were getting saved. Now again, Luke's implying something very important here. By introducing this idea of, you know what, the church continues to roll and grow, in verse 1, and he said, but there's this issue. And then in verse 7, the church is continuing to roll and grow. What would have happened if they had not have dealt with that issue? What's he implying there? If we don't have deacons or their de- prototypes here, we don't have verse 7. People would not be coming to Christ. The word of God would not continue to be spread. And that's exactly the danger the church faces if it doesn't have biblical deacons. For then the organization of the church falls upon those who are supposed to be proclaiming the word and shepherding the flock and praying. If there are no biblical deacons and all the needs of the body go unmet, or not all of the needs in the body get met, unity is at risk. And again, the Great Commission is hampered. So church, do you see the importance of biblical deacons? No? Wow. All right. Start over. Back at verse 1. Let me go back to page one of my notes. 
I know it's an obvious question, but it is. Deacons are vital to the church. So we've seen here the need for deacons. Let's talk about the requirements for deacons. Can just anybody hold the office? If you have an ability, a skill, and a desire to help, does that mean then you are qualified? Well, again, in everything, we have to ask, well, what does God want? How does he define and characterize the role? That's all that matters, right? In the end is how God has defined it. Here in Acts 3, the apostles identify three requirements for the deacon prototype. Look at verse 3. They were first to be men of what? Men of good reputation, right? They were going to be handling money. They were going to be dealing with people. They were going to be in situations of potential conflict. People were going to be dependent on them. And so these needed to be men who were well thought of, who had integrity, who could be trusted. They were also to be those full of the Spirit. They must be saved, obviously, and spirit-led. That means these guys were constantly, consistently in the Word. They were consistently spending time with the Lord in prayer. They were consistently in fellowship with the body, with other believers. And they were always striving to obey the Lord. So that then the Spirit would be working and moving and leading them. These would be men who needed to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, right? Because in the potentially volatile situations, especially in this one here in Acts 6, they would need to, of all people, demonstrate love and joy and patience and goodness and self-control, right? And thirdly, these men were to be full of wisdom, right? They had some problems before them. Problems logistically, problems, again, in terms of issues that had arisen, potential conflicts. So they needed wisdom. So they need to be full of wisdom. And that would imply that these men would be diligent students of the word. Because as Proverbs 2 tells us, we need to dig and dig hard. And the scriptures give wisdom in that process. Notice here that the apostles said nothing about specific skills. They did not ask for those who could manage or cook or build or or maintain a budget. Now, these are important skills to do the work effectively. But again, what's the primary concern here? What's the key focus here? You tell me. Character. 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 Right? To some extent, you can teach the practical skills, but you can't teach character. In regards to uh, choosing the next king, you remember what God told Samuel in 1 Samuel sixteen seven. after Samuel saw the sons of Jesse and the first one walks in and he's this big, handsome, rugged man. Whoa, that must be him. God says, no, no, I'm looking for a man after my own heart. And you know what that means? One who loves what God loves and hates what he hates. David told his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28.9, where he said, Solomon, you need to serve the Lord with a perfect heart. And that's what God cares about most in all believers, but especially in those who have visible roles within the offices of elder and deacon within the church. Again, this doesn't mean, though, that you just have some guy oversee some ministry where he has no idea what he's doing. It's not to eliminate the practical skills and abilities at all we need to match the the ministry with the guy's abilities but even if somebody had this tremendous talent and ability if he's not a man who's led by the spirit full of wisdom if he's not a man of integrity it doesn't matter how good of an accountant or a lawyer or a project manager or a contractor or business owner or whatever he is since these men must work with one another and work with those in the body and work with the elders They must have integrity. They must exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. We see the same focus in Paul's list of requirements in 1 Timothy 3. In fact, let's turn to 1 Timothy 3 and look at that list. We're not going to have time to go through it in detail, but at least want us to to see it, and I'll have a couple brief comments. Paul's letter to Timothy was one that entirely focused on the church, how it is organized, how it is to function, what needs to happen, in the context of the church. And here in 1 Timothy 3, Paul gives the most comprehensive description anywhere of the church's only two offices, elder and deacon. Verses 1 to 7, he describes what what the qualifications are, what is necessary for the one who would serve as elder. And then he turns his attention in verse 8 on deacons. Look there with me at verse 8 where he says, 
Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women, likewise, must be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children in their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Again, here the translators have translated diakonos as deacon because they recognize here that Paul's not speaking just about a servant in general, but a specific office within the church. And we know that it is an office because he says in verse 8, likewise, after speaking about elders and their responsibility and role, he identifies another role in the church, that of deacon. And these deacons are not a second-tier group. Again, as I've talked about, they are just as important to the church. And Paul here gives several qualifications for those who would serve as deacons, just as he did for elders in verses 1 to 7, those who would serve in shepherding the flock. Here in verses 8 to 13, it is those who would serve to facilitate ministry within the flock. Now, time doesn't permit, again, to go through these verses in detail, but I want to make a couple important observations. Notice first he says deacons, plural, not deacon, singular. Like the elders, it is a group we are speaking of here, not a bunch of independent individuals. And notice the overall focus in these verses and requirements for a deacon. What is it? Asked the same question essentially a minute ago. What is the focus? It's their character. Paul says here, That deacons are to be men of dignity, that is, respectable, honorable, esteemed. They are to be not to be hypocritical or insincere, especially in what they say. They're not to be given to excessive drinking, and I would say any issue of the flesh. They they must not love money or sin in their acquiring of it. Verse 9 says the deacon must know sound doctrine and live it out. He must be beyond reproach, a man of integrity in every part of his life. And verse 12 focuses in on his home, that he is for certain to be a man of integrity in his home life. He's to be faithful to his wife, both emotionally and physically. He is to lead his children so that they are submissive to his leadership. It says he must manage or lead his home well. The deacon is to be a man of exemplary character. Now, if we were to take this list in verses 8 through 13 and and line it up with the list given in verses 1 to 7 regarding elders, you notice anything similar about these two lists? They overlap quite a bit, don't they? Not all exactly the same things, but it generally gives the same picture, doesn't it? I mean, a guy here that has to have integrity, be above reproach, not be given into vices in his flesh. Both elder and deacon must be of like character the only glaring difference between these lists as many have noted over the years is that deacons are not required to be teachers like elders are both must know the word both must adhere to it and practice it in their life but only elders are required to be able to teach it and that's because of the difference in responsibility between an elder and a deacon elders must what is their role what is their primary role feed and protect the flock right to, to feed and minister the word as the apostles described it. And so they have to be able to effectively articulate and defend the truth. But deacons are focused primarily on facilitating ministry in the body, and so they aren't required to teach. This doesn't mean they can't teach. In fact, Stephen and Philip were very effective communicators. If a deacon is gifted to teach, he's encouraged to do so. It's just that he's not required to for his office as deacon, but in every other aspect of his character, he must be like that of an elder. Now, there is a question that often pops up in discussing deacons. Verse 11 prompts that question. For up to this point, Paul's been addressing men. As he was speaking to the elders in verses 1 to 7, he was addressing men. In verse 8, when he addresses deacons, he's addressing men. He says they're men of dignity. The question is, though, in verse 11, he speaks to women. And who are these women? Are they also deacons? Again, time doesn't permit to go through this thoroughly, but what I see here is that Paul is addressing another group in the church. 
a group that is different than deacons. Deacons are clearly identified in verse 8. And then again, he refers back to deacons in verse 12 after this uh, verse on regarding and addressing women in verse 11. But as Paul is identifying and recognizing the key roles within the church, Paul understands and knows there are indeed women who serve in the church in an extremely important capacity. And I'm so thankful we have such women here at Calvary serving the various ministries that involve women here. And Paul notes here in verse 11 how these women are to be characterized. He says that they are to be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate and faithful in all things. Paul recognizes the importance that women play within the body and those who are involved in ministry with other women. But Paul, I think, makes it clear here that these women in verse 11 aren't the same as the office of deacon. Because again, note he addresses deacons beginning in verse 8 and then says there to be men of dignity. And then in verse 12, he goes back to addressing deacons and says they are to be the husband of one wife. Paul would not have advocated putting women in a position of deacon who would have oversight over ministries that had both men and women in them. That would violate his instruction earlier in 1 Timothy 2.12. But again, Paul understands the importance of mature women in the body who are serving the needs of the body. So here, in looking at this passage in 1 Timothy 3, we see that both offices of elder and deacon, as I see them, are directed for men. But again, that doesn't mean that women do not have an important role. And I wish there would be more time to dig into many of these things here. And what I would ask you or encourage you to do is, Jack Hughes did a wonderful series on this passage in 1 Timothy about uh, back in 2001, I think. A three-parter. So he really dug into and explained many of the, the issues here in these verses and what they mean. And I'd encourage you to go and listen to those. They're on our website. And you can be encouraged by them. Now before I have Brother Brad come up here to introduce our deacon team, want to make sure we do address an important question. How does this apply to the rest of us? I mean, most of us in this room are not elders, are not deacons. What are we supposed to glean from understanding about deacons? Well, one, we need to know who a deacon is and what he's supposed to do in order to help them be accountable, right? To keep God's standards, same as the elders. They need to, we need to understand their role, especially when compared to elders. And remember and recognize that this isn't another governing body in the church. They aren't the ones given responsibility to lead and shepherd the flock, but rather to meet the needs of the body. On the other hand, we need to understand the role and responsibility of deacons so that we do not kind of think, oh, great, now we've got a group of guys. They're going to take care of all the service issues in the body. That's wonderful. What did Paul say in Ephesians 4.12? That you, saints, all of you, are being equipped to do the work of the service so that the built to the building up of the body of Christ. All of us are deacons in that sense. All of us are servants for one another. It's the job of all the saints to serve in the body. In fact, we could, I think, sum up the structure of the church in this way. That's important. I want you to listen. I stole it from Kempis. Kempis stole it from Placerita Baptist. Placerita Baptist stole it from Capital Ministries and Watch. So we're a bunch of thieves stealing from other thieves. But I think it's a great summary of how the church is structured. Essentially, they said this, God has designed his church for the elders to shepherd, for the deacons to facilitate ministry, and the body to do the work of the ministry. You understand how that? The elders equip you to serve by feeding into your life and protecting you from error and feeding you truth. The deacons oversee the opportunities to serve, and you serve. Get it? Amen? Come on. We're going to serve here. Galatians 5.13 says to all believers, through love, serve one another. Or 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Deacons are so vital because they not only help the elders to fulfill their role to shepherd the flock, but they also help the body to fulfill its role to serve the flock. So today... That's why I'm excited today. I hope you are, because God's going to use these men to help us in serving the body. I know this is not the complete and full answer, but it's moving in the right direction of how we're supposed to be structured and organized. It's how God's designed His church, so that 
all of us could serve one another as he has called us to. And, you know, in closing, we cannot leave this morning's theme of service without reflecting on the ultimate servant, the ultimate diakonos. It was Jesus himself who said in Mark 10, 44, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Think about that. Do you realize we wouldn't have a gospel if our Lord did not have the heart of a deacon? And his sacrifice of service went all the way to death. To serve us. To serve us. To serve us sinners who needed a ransom to pay for our sins. For any who would turn from that desire to turn from their sins and place their trust in him. Jesus served by giving his own life as a payment for sin for any who would repent and believe. And so deacons really lead us in following our Savior's example, and that is one of a servant. Thank God for deacons. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for how you have wonderfully designed your church. And Lord, despite, it seems, our best efforts to mess that up at times, Father, you've given us your word to to instruct us, to show us, to teach us. Lord, you... You're infinite in your wisdom. You have perfectly designed the bride of Christ the way you want it, the way you know it will function best. And Lord, forgive us for not, Lord, fulfilling that structure. Forgive us for not having that. But Lord, we want to do what's right. We want to pursue it. And we want, Lord, you to be honored through it. Because in the end, that's what we want Jesus to, to be honored and lifted up through this church. Lord, thank you for the men who have, Lord, uh, shown desire for this work and pray God that you will bless them and encourage them and Lord uh, motivate them and use them Lord to motivate us as a body to serve and Lord that we would be unified and that we would reflect as one the Lord Jesus it's in his name we pray amen